Hello and welcome to Presenting, a podcast where we talk about various topics related to role-playing games, typically Paizo products such as Pathfinder and Starfinder, but also others. I'm John Godick, and with me today is Stephanie Lundeen. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. So Stephanie is a, I won't say an old friend of mine. I've known you for about three or four years. Yeah, yeah, about Somewhere that. along lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm very excited to get this opportunity to uh, bring you on on our uh, our podcast here and introduce you to the world. So Stephanie is a freelance writer and editor for Paizo, having previously been a professional writer and editor for several other companies, as well as a visiting university lecturer, which I've heard quite a bit about. Uh, she has co-authored two Pathfinder second edition adventure paths, as well as done freelance work on several other second edition hardcovers and adventure path back matter sections. She's also has her own blog at ouramazingforeverfamily.com, where she details the journey of her not-so-typical family, and we'll talk about that. And for the past three years, she has played Koholo, the rough-and-tumble Solarian, on our Intrepid Heroes Actual Play podcast here on the No Direction Network. And Stephanie, so the first question I have is, you're an editor, right? But you're a freelance editor for Paizo, right? Well, my contract actually ended because Paizo is in the oh. process of expanding their editing team uh, and bringing on okay. full-time people. And I wasn't interested in going full-time for them. I have, you know, so many other. <laughs> oh, so, so it like ended like just last week? Yeah. Well, no, actually <laughs> in June. Um, right. Yeah. Which was last week. <laughs> yes. <Okay. laughs> no, um, right. at the beginning of June, but. Well, tell us, though, what that job entailed as a freelance editor. I I have talked to Simone before, who's a full-time technical editor. Um, But as a freelance editor, it's a little bit different. And I knew that um, I'd seen that uh, Leo had been soliciting soliciting more uh, full-time positions. So I should have clicked that. I didn't realize that you you were not still working for them. But kind of talk about this job that you did for Paizo, kind of what that entailed and how that differed from the editing you did for other companies. Oh, my pleasure. It, it Paizo has an absolutely amazing editing team. And uh, so w- what I got to do was see the first drafts do um, one of the first passes. Most Paizo products get two editorial passes before it goes to layout and then two passes after layout. And uh, that meant that I was privy to products that won't actually be in print for months. Um, so it was, it was really fun to be getting like the first, the first look at this up- upcoming material. Um, so I was, uh, and, and I got to work on a bunch of, of different Starfinder, uh, Pathfinder, um, Lost Omens, some of the organized play, like, you know, whatever, whatever was kind of next in the queue. And um, mm-hmm. it was it, it was so much fun. <laughs> Just so much fun. The team. And, and the team actual and- editing. How, how was that? I mean, what did what did that actually entail, I guess? Oh, so. Uh, it was um, kind of a, a holistic editing um, where I was looking at in it's everything, basically. I mean, 
it, it was fine for me to catch typos and do kind of some proofreading stuff. Um, and then also formatting, making sure that the styles were applied correctly mm-hmm. and that uh, um, the comments, sometimes the comments from um, the development pass were still in there. And so, you know, make sure that, mm. that they had been applied correctly and then that the comments were resolved. Um, oh, wow. That's kind of that technical yeah. side. But then there was also uh, the concept side and then the language around the concepts. So um, kind of examining, well, all right, so here's here's a monster. How does that fit with how we've presented other monsters in this, uh, of right. this type or from this region? And then what does the language look like that we're using? Or is it, are we applying um, standards around gender uh, or um the presentation of this kind of ecology and like, so it, it was just great because um, in a lot of the other jobs I've done, I've been very constrained about the kind of editing that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Like I'm either um, like, you know, just proofing or the client has a very set idea about how these concepts need to be put forth. And um, a lot of the technical writing that I've, or editing that I've done, has been um, business focused, so it's it's just not as fun. <laughs> like with Bias, of course, it just it's so much fun. Yeah. And um, I think the the ones that I enjoyed working on the most were the organized play because it was the whole story. Mm. You know, I got to see the whole plot. Mm-hmm. I got to um, think about the NPCs, the traps, the uh, descriptions. Like really have this. Um, a lot of uh, editorial investment and getting to shape the whole thing. I mean, it, let me add that most of the material I worked on was just in terrific shape. The freelancers mm-hmm. or the in-house, right? Most of it was freelance, but had been through, you know, the full Paizo development pass. So I was seeing very well-written and just exciting stuff you know there were a few and what's great about the way that they the team has it set up is the things that you know like maybe i didn't catch you know that oh this this isn't totally mesh with how we've presented the setting before is this a direction that we want to take it or is this you know like if i didn't catch that then somebody else did but then um you know vice versa well you know i know somebody else already gave this a pass but i'm i'm really not comfortable with how this is being presented and the team has a great space set up to just really talk those ideas out you know like cop is like hey what do we um you know what do we think about this or what have we done with this in the past or how how does this and then also for the grammatical things right like uh you know the reason that sentence doesn't sound right is because you're using relative pronoun when you should be using you know blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. so it was just a wonderful team to get to bounce those ideas back and then also see the, um, and, and also just share that kind of knowledge about the language and yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, how, how did you get that opportunity in the first place? So you were an editor private, uh, prior to that and you have a PhD in English, right? Yes. Um, so how did you get the opportunity? How did that go? Um, from you were doing the work before to now doing some work for Paizo? Well, 
so I think it just had, yeah, so I've been a professional editor um, since 2013. I, I transitioned, so I, yeah, I have a PhD in English literature uh, from Loyola University of Chicago, um, specializing in medieval literature, which, you know, also. Oh, very cool. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and you know, any <laughs> any medievalist who is also interested in fantasy also finds a way to. Um, I know there's a lot of crossover. That you know, uh, Tolkien was famously yeah. a medievalist and drew a lot of his inspiration from medieval works for um, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and uh, Middle Earth, I guess I should say. Um, so. I had, and then I had started doing Paizo Freelance um, several years ago. And I I do still work um, as a professional editor. I have um, dropped down to just one um, company that I'm working for right now. But uh, I think that I got recommended, uh, you know, when the editing team was in just a kind of a, a straight spot and they have contractors and they put out the, the mm-hmm. call and, um, but I'm, I'm really proud of Paizo, really glad for, um, for the team that they're moving away from that model. Um, mm-hmm. and it was a fabulous, uh, opportunity for me. And, you know, there's always kind of that sadness that, that, that the, that that won't won't necessarily be an opportunity that I'll be able to pursue anytime soon, but I think that for the team, for uh, consistency and quality for Paizo, and then just as a sign that Paizo is really making the right decisions, the right employment decisions, that it's great that they're expanding the team and bringing on. It's um, I do have to say on the the requirements and the the reason that there were contract opportunities uh, to begin with is that Paizo has an just stupendous uh, publishing schedule. Like they are so um, like the, the volume of editing was really, um, really high. <laughs> and uh, that it, has led to a lot of frustration on the part of the full-time editors. And mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's, it's really a big ask. And compared to the other editing that I had done, I was expected to move really quickly. And um, so I, I'm glad to see that that will help to alleviate that kind of, you know, and, ju- and just make sure that Paizo is improving as a place to work. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Ron had mentioned to me that, uh, you did not want to go full-time and you said that as well. Is it family considerations or, or is it other work? It's other work. It's uh, the one company that I have been with since 2015, I think officially um, is a very small executive coaching company. And I just do not have the heart to leave them. They are um, really a terrific company and uh, I really enjoy the kind of, they promote a very positive leadership model based based on positive psychology and um, and they're just a great team and it the, the work ebbs and flows but right now I've 
they've had more for me to do. Um, and I, I knew from past experience, because I had tried this during shutdown, I was working full time and doing their stuff. And then, as you mentioned, the family considerations are huge. It's the summer and it's, um, it just is hard to give uh, anything my full attention. But then um, the other two reasons is that I want time in order to work on this project that I've had in the hopper since 2018. I'm writing a biography of um, Utah's fourth governor, first Mm. Democrat, and the only Jewish immigrant to have Mm. been elected governor of Utah, one of only six Jewish people to be governors in the United States period. And he, yeah, he, anyway, I I won't distract myself by going (laughs) off about it, but he's just remarkable. No one's written a biography. And I feel like right now is the time to be reminding people of the need to evaluate um, candidates based on their merits and based on their um, philosophies and not based on their religious affiliation or their, Mm -hmm. um, you know, their, their, country of birth, even, you know, like it does the fact that this, you know, Utah remains one of the most homogenous states religiously. And the fact that they were represented by a a Jewish man who was an immigrant, you know, had German accent and everything anyway. And then kind of relatedly, um, I want time to volunteer for, um, getting the vote out for this November. I feel like you know, America. I, so I lived in Argentina for a year back in the '90s, and um, I saw how carefully and devotedly people there were about their democracy because they'd lost it more than once. Right? They'd had, mm-hmm. they had lived through um, uh, military juntas and their neighbors disappearing. And they were required, every Argentine who is eligible is required to vote. Like you break the law if you do not cast your vote. And to compare that against, you know, the U.S. where in a, in a very tough, you know, white knuckle kind of election, we break 50% of eligible voters voting. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the last election here, special election, kind of an off time, blah, 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 barely broke 30%. Wow. Um, yeah, that's the one that... that uh, Ron ran for school board and lost, but the number only of only at fifty percent, thirty thirty, like like it was a few yeah. thousand people that even turned in their votes. So yeah, yeah like I mean, he got clobbered. He lost by twenty percent, but it was actually a few hundred people. Yeah. So I really want to have time, and and if I'm working forty hours a week plus doing this and that, and then also trying to you know, yeah. So our kids are young enough that they really do need. Um, and, and I also feel like I have these very few years before they're not going to need me. (laughs) Mm. It's very close. You know, they're all, um, they all think they're going on 18, you know, they all, they all, they all talk a big game, but, uh, I'm really. Speaking of your kids, um, you've started a blog talking about your family, uh, kind of. What's the inspiration behind the blog? And I'll allow you to uh, kind of describe your family and, and whatnot to describe uh, why you started the blog, if you like. 
Thank you. And yeah, I, I should mention that as something else that I want to keep up. But the, the truth is that it's, it, it's not a heavy lift. Um, and it's not so I, it's just such a pleasure that there's always time for the blog. Uh, so we, Ron and I adopted three kids. We were lucky enough to adopt three children um, at birth. We use their middle names on the blog. And um, it was actually, so we have an open, we have our oldest daughter that is in a more traditional adoptive situation where we, we did meet the birth mother. She wanted to interview us um, and we send letters, but we were hoping for more interaction with her and with her family. Um, and that has never materialized. And then the twins, on the other hand, their birth mom has become a very close friend and family member. And um, so we have a super open adoption with her. Um, it's interracial and it's, um, and the blog, I think we started when, so we saw her very frequently, like pretty much weekly when we lived in Chicagoland. But then we moved out here and she was still in Chicago and it was really difficult. It was a time of very deep transition, very difficult time for her, difficult for all of us emotionally as well, except Ron. He was like, ah, I'm a Bible. <laughs> um, <laughs> morning he was all, where did we used to live before we came here to heaven? Um, <laughs> so yeah, and the rest of us, like, you know, I want to move back there. So uh, we started the blog as a way to kind of document the relationship. But since then, um, Danelle has moved out here and we're back to seeing her a lot more frequently. It's um, not to out her totally, but she is also a role player. That's one of the ways that she managed to really bond with the family. And um, I mean, it's hard to be a black nerd. It really is. And uh, hopefully we can get her connected. Some more black nerds out here, uh, not just nerds, you know, that part we got covered, but um, it was actually her idea to start the blog again. Like I think I already said, oh. kind of document our unusual um, and promote the kind of openness. She's very much an adoption advocate, which is very difficult in her culture. Um, it's really, she, she's taken a lot of heat for trusting, you know, white parents to raise her kids. And then also it's emotionally very difficult for her. She works with uh, birth mothers. She's part of an organization, one of the only nonprofits that supports birth mothers. And um, we, um, so she wanted to start this blog where we could both present our perspectives and kind of talk about the process and about how we've um, grown together. So the process is that we, we have a topic and we each write like our side of the topic. And um, we were better initially about <laughs> posting regular updates. Um, that's been hard to sustain, especially, you know, like we've each gotten very busy or just burned out. Like, you know, the shutdown was, was hard on everyone. Um, so I, yeah, I, I feel like it's, um, uh, I mean, I, I would like to be posting more often on it and, and kind of getting, you know, like increasing its viewership and, um, impact. I think it eventually we'd like to turn it into a book and kind of have mm -hmm. something that, that really, 
I mean, there, there are no, there are no instruction manuals for how to have an open adoption and how to put together what we call a complex blended family. Um, right. And I, I think we'd kind of like to uh, make a contribution in that, that non-existent area. So. Yeah. I mean, when I see the interactions of the twins with, with you and Ron and then with their, their birth mother, it's interesting to see, you know, how they do, you know, like when they say it's time to go to bed or whatever, you know, time to go to good night, who, who disciplines them, right? She doesn't, she doesn't do that. Right. right? You know, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see them around. And I actually think it would be really interesting to get the, the kids perspective as well. Oh, on something that's like a that, great idea, actually. you know, because it's like for a long time when she wasn't out here, she was still in Chicago, the birth mom, right? You just had your traditional, your, your adoptive family here doing things. And then what, two years ago, year and a half ago, um, yeah, just when over she came year. out yeah. and then she's over quite a bit now, right? That changes the dynamic some. So I'd be yeah. curious. Absolutely. Um, That's a great idea because they are old enough now that they could really right. be contributing. Th- thank you. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, and your oldest, what is her um, ethnicity? Do you know? So we were told the birth mom was white and she said that the father was African-American. Um, but, and, but she's never had a lot of um, African features. Right. So as soon as it became, and my, my mom, who was a little obsessed with this, uh, sent us one of the Ancestry DNA kits as soon as mm-hmm. they allowed those to be available to, I think it's children 10 or older. Hmm. Um, and side note, we have been able to confirm that the twins are twins and the biological children of their, of the mother. Anyway, um, <laughs> so and they are it's so cute. They're like 96% African um, and mostly West African, which I, it just completely lines up with, but again, we didn't know very much about their birth father um, genetically, but it's apparently pretty much all from the same. Well, Darnell will say (laughs) I'm 1% British (laughs) anyway. um, So with our older daughter, our oldest daughter, she, um, is genetically 60% Celtic. And that's hmm. changed every time we've looked, you know, like initially it was all Irish. And since then it's been yeah. Scottish and Cornish and, um, and, but pretty much all, all of her uh, European heritage is Celtic and then 30% native American. Um, oh, wow. And I could see that, I guess. Yeah. And then between six yeah. and 8% African Um, and then the rest other. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I think is the deal, and this is not unusual for African-Americans, I think that her birth father looked more African, but actually clearly had a lot of Native American. Right, um, right. Frustratingly for all of us, um, there's not a good way to figure out her tribal affiliation or... And that actually, I've been, I've done some research into this because I remembered a conversation a very long time ago with a friend who was also pursuing adoption and um, she was Cherokee. She is Cherokee. And um, she explained that, you know, there are these rules around whether um, 
children or that that native children need to go with native parents. Um, and so then I got a little nervous, like, oh, wait, you know, is this, do, do we need to report this to somebody or something? And it turns out, no, that that affiliation thing is if the parents are enrolled in a tribe and it's, so it's not racial, it's about belonging to it, a nation. So like if an Irish parent had a child with an American, then they could also like, then you would there. And then they'd, anyway, like the, I, right. there could be a connection with like, they would have to file Irish citizenship or whatever. So right. if a Cherokee who is a member of the Cherokee nation has a child, then they're um, and they're enrolled and the child is enrolled as a Cherokee, then that's when the law takes effect. Like it doesn't actually have to do with, right. uh, with DNA. Right. Oh, anyway, sorry for that side thing, but no, no, that's interesting. interesting. I wanted yeah. to know, so that's why right? I know it's, it's a really interesting area of you know because I, I think I think one of our 19th century hangovers is that um, we still, especially white people, still think racially when it and that clouds like our understanding of things like sovereignty, right? Like when it's actually not a racial issue and to come full circle, this Cherokee friend. So they had been contacted um, and flown actually up here to adopt a Tlingit boy. He was Tlingit and one other tribe, but he was blonde. He was blonde and blue eyed. <laughs> so she was like, yeah, you wouldn't know. <laughs> um but because he, because his um, parentage, or at least part of his parentage, was, were enrolled in the tribe, then, yeah, anyway. So getting back to um, more uh, writing and stuff. Uh, so you've worked on uh, eight or more, I actually don't know how many total, uh, freelance projects uh, for Paizo. How did, you get you, how did you get your start freelancing for them in the writing part? I, um, I've really, it's been so long. I don't remember, but I think, <laughs> I think I sent, you know, once Ron encouraged me to, um, just email and say, Hey, I'd be interested in writing. And, um, and he, I didn't have like, a blog, but I, you know, I had some examples of writing and, um, yeah, I, I really think that kind of the way that you, I mean, it definitely freelancing, it's hard to get started in and it's hard to kind of know where to, where to find your footing. You know, Ron had, Ron did a lot of writing for, um, the living Greyhawk setting. And mm -hmm. so he, he, kind of knew his way around. He knew that, you know, you, you just, you got to send emails. You got to, it really helps if you go to conventions, you meet people, you talk about um, the game. And then he had been, I am still trying to figure out social media. I'm not, not that great at um, understanding how, <laughs> like, but I know like he posted on forums and stuff and met people that way. And I really, honestly benefited from the fact that he's so outgoing and so willing to um, kind of help uh, make introductions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, speaking of Ron, um, 
with your editing background, how much did you assist him with his projects? Uh, were you an in-house editor for him or did you review them or did you yeah. say, you know what, I'm not going to have anything to do with that? Well, the more prolific he got, the less involved I could. And the more I was working, like, like right. I mentioned during the shutdown, there was a point where I was working like full-time with a part-time gig and, you know, maybe another part-time gig. And, um, so, uh, so it, it would kind of ebb and flow, but especially back in the early days, I would, uh, I would edit everything that he, and a lot of his stuff is really clean. He doesn't need like a proofreader so much as uh well, Hey, have you considered, you know, your, have you, have you considered how you're presenting this here? Or what if we were to describe this room this way? What if, what if this NPC actually was not, um, uh, at, you know, the <laughs> abandoned orphan or what, you know, it's, what if we, what if we went this direction with it instead? Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed collaborating with him um, on an idea level Often, a lot of times, I would just read through what he had done and say, you know, oh, you you had a typo on page four. <laughs> but the more that he, um, so again, it was a really good, really good training for me too, uh, to read through what he was working on and um, again see how, uh, you know, occasionally say, well. Let, let me let me research this idea here like I'm you know does that really fit with what's been and he's very good with that but very occasionally it'd be like, well you know let's let's see what what exactly would a Kellid tomb look like you know so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I would never um I would never think my wife would want to read through anything I wrote I've written a lot especially <laughs> academic papers I'm thinking I don't even want to read and edit this. How can I sub subject somebody I care about to reading this stuff? But I think freelance writing is probably a little bit different. And you're a gamer too, right? So, yeah. so it was maybe a little bit, a little bit more interesting for you. Well, um, and the more that I wanted to get, and you know, I was like, well, hey, you're doing all the writing, you're having all the fun. I want to do some writing, you know. Then it it made even more sense for me to kind of have that. Uh, to, to take advantage of the like in-house uh, mm -hmm. opportunity, you know, literally in-house. <laughs> so, you know, now we've recorded over a hundred episodes of Intrepid Heroes. That's you amazing. Know, I, 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 we're probably up to close to 105. I don't know. I have to look at the exact number. We've only, we published, I think 90, but we mm -hmm. have a whole bunch more in the, in the hopper. Um, but that's all Starfinder, right? And you've been writing primarily, Pathfinder Second Edition. Yeah, I haven't done any Starfinder, and I haven't done any of the rules books. Mm -hmm. so, so, are you interested in doing that? Can we see you? Oh, maybe you'll be doing some of that in the future. Absolutely, and you're reminding me that I I need to send a couple emails. Hey. Yes, yeah, I do too. I'm still finishing up another project. I'm kind of waiting till I get everything done before I before I do that. Um, yeah, exactly. You, you, you know, it's it's the hardest thing about gig work and about um, kind of juggling various part time opportunities is that it's either feast or famine. Right? <laughs> they either it's either everything is due this week or, huh, this feels like free time. What do I do with that? Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, and, and one question I I 
I kind of know a little bit about, but I, I wanted to ask you more about and kind of bring it up. And listeners to our Intrepid Heroes podcast will often hear you say, well, I can't see this, I can't find this, or where is this thing? Um, uh, looking at you, even um, here on the video, most people wouldn't expect that you have a, a pretty severe visual impairment. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of what that is and um, how it affects how you interact in your writing, in your game playing, in your editing, things like that? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I have a hereditary uh, congenital disability. It's called achromatopsia. And um, it, it uh, means that my retina didn't form completely. So I'm missing the cones. And that's, I know it's very technical for anybody out there that uh, knows something about about the eye. Um, and it um, means, what it means practically is that, uh, and it, it manifests a little differently for everybody. I have a brother with the same condition and even his, his man, yeah, the way it shows up for him and the accommodations that he looks for are different than, than me, um, than mine. Uh, so the, the three main issues, uh, for me with the, are that I can't see any colors whatsoever. Um, so I'm completely colorblind, which is very, very rare in women and pretty much derives only from retinal issues like this. I, <laughs> once got mansplained about how I couldn't really be colorblind because it's, no, that's, yes, it is true that most, most often it's connected to the Y chromosome, but. Um, I have an extreme photophobia and this is what is kind of unusual for my particular manifestation, but I'm very, very sensitive to light and, um, like sunlight, like it, it burns. It's really difficult for me to see outside on a sunny day. I have to wear sunglasses. Um, I squint all the time, I have a difficult time with fluorescent lights and, but natural lighting is usually what's just overpowering. And then third, I um, have a hard time seeing details. So um, when before, and then uh, in addition, I've, I've gained some nearsightedness thanks to, you know, the PhD <laughs> and computer screens generally. But prior, like when I was a kid, if a sign was far enough away, it just looked blank. And I, I really would be like, why do they just put up these big white squares, you know, like, or, or black squares. Why did, and then if, when we get close enough, I could see that, oh, that's, it says exit to B or, you know, it says you know, drink this fabulous concoction, whatever it says. So, um, what that means is that, uh, I use the high con and let me add that, um, computers have come a long ways since, you know, the, the nineties when I had to buy a specific software just for a magnifier or to, um, you know, kind of change the settings, but I, I use high contrast settings, which with every update, every browser, every program, something will go wonky. I use magnification, um, which same thing, like it's great. like on roll 20, like I can zoom in on part, but then I can't always zoom back out. Um, mm -hmm. or I'll put something somewhere and then when I uh, are on the, on the screen, but then if I move somewhere, it'll, it'll move, you know, 
Um, but a lot of times the, the biggest problems with computers is, is the contrast. You know, if it's, let's say that, and, and there are, you know, there are accessibility standards around this that developers, I think, are more and more aware of, but, you know, there has to be a certain amount of contrast uh, or there there is a best practice for the amount of contrast, like, you know, Black text on a red background is just really not optimal. And then right, sometimes right. it will, sometimes it will translate correctly with the high contrast and sometimes it won't. And so sometimes things are there and sometimes they're not. Um, but yeah, when I was younger, I could kind of squint my way through regular print. Now I have to have large print for standard print materials or like super high level um, magnifying readers <laughs> like the guy yeah, i always i always see you with that little round uh, yes. magnifier you you have to put right on the on the table to yes. put your eye up to to see what's on the written character sheet so yeah exactly um and that's a what is that called um it's a but they they were meant oh it's a cartographer's lens right so it's meant right. to look at maps you know for people that have regular vision, but want to like really focus in on exactly this little corner of the map. Um, but yeah, for me, that's, that's how I can deal with regular print, wow. uh, with editing. So what kind of, so if I had tried to go straight into editing back in the nineties, when I got my, um, bachelor's degree, it would have been pretty much, well, it, it would have involved a lot of those cartographer lenses over, you know, like it, it would have been a very difficult kind of thing back, especially back in the earlier days of computers. And what is wonderful now is that I can use um, this adaptive, you know, um, assistive technology to, you know, like, so I, I might especially if I'm proofing, I'm likely looking at a page that's blown up to probably 24, 28 point font or not actually, but you know, the image is right. Right. The characters are really big so that I can make sure, you know, that it's a comma not a period or that. um, So yeah, that's, that's been a really key part. And then another thing that has been important for me is working remote. I really prefer to work remote because I can control the lighting. I can control a lot of the environmental things that are otherwise, um, like in a regular office, I, I would be the one sitting there in sunglasses trying to, you know, like, yep. Uh, yeah, it's if, funny. With, and let me with say back allergies. in the 90s, I was the one sitting there yeah. at the sunglasses or wearing a hat inside, you know, trying to lean it up, you know, basically on top of the computer. It was really uncomfortable. You know, the shared computers where I couldn't, the administrator wouldn't let me do it in high contrast. Anyway, sorry. Just No, I was going to say with my allergies being so bad, even out here in Camino, so not my usual place, it's so bright out here that I generally have to wear sunglasses inside just to look outside. <laughs> so hopefully this is going to clear up in the next couple of weeks because it's oh. really nice out and I want to look outside, but it's like, oh, it burns my eyes. So Yeah, that's... So, you, you understand my world. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If you like this all the time, man, that's got to really stink. And you know, Danielle just... had her eyes dilated a couple weeks ago and came over and was doing the same thing. You know, <laughs> we had to find her some sunglasses. Yeah. She wanted the lights turned off. And I was like, oh, that's how I should explain. And I wish I'd remembered that, but that's yeah. how I should explain. Yeah, yeah. It's like my eyes are permanently dilated. Like right. that's right. the, 
and and actually my pupils do um they expand in bright light which is the problem right <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's supposed to constrict mm. so yeah it is like my eyes are permanently dilated and it's wow yeah again that that's kind of unusual for my particular condition i really if i could change one thing i i wouldn't i wouldn't give myself color vision i would i would fix that because it's really yeah so Stephanie, what advice do you have for people interested in getting into editing or freelance writing? I would say just, first of all, do, um, well, it, they're, they're two very different skills. They are related, but they're different for, and for writing, I would say just do it. Like the one thing that I really gained, I mean, having, decided to not pursue, after a few years, deciding not to pursue full-time um, academic work and and then ending up like stepping away even from the, the adjuncting. Um, what I really, really gained from my PhD was the ability to write. And of course it was, you know, very formal academic writing, but it meant mm -hmm. that moving into other kinds of writing was really easy. And, and I really enjoy... Um, for the most, well, I, I especially enjoy writing that I have a lot of autonomy over, <laughs> like freelancing. So my first piece of advice would be get really good and really comfortable with writing. And I, I feel like blogging is really where it's at. Like that's really a great place where you can hone your skills and also showcase. And, you, you know, you have a lot of control. You write something embarrassing, you can always take it down. Or, but then <laughs> that also allows prospective employers to see what you're capable of and to see that you're regular, that you're disciplined. You know, and I know with our blog, it's been a little disappointing to not have more readers, but I, um, I now kind of realize that that's not necessarily the point, like the point of, and like I mentioned, we, we are looking at hopefully turning this into a book at some point. And so having created that content and going through, you know, some of the motions, but anyway, so my, my, that would really, and I, do happen to have the insider information that I, there have been a couple of freelancers who have really bobbled there. You know, they finally get that crack, they get that topic and then they've, they bobbled it and it's been hard for them to, I think that it's not just that the Paizo developers are like, Oh no, but that it feels so difficult as the freelancer. Like I, I, I know one personally and I, I reached out to say like, Hey, how can we get you, you know, kind of going in this again? And, um, and they really weren't that interested because it had mm -hmm. been such a painful experience. Mm -hmm. So as much as, and I, I totally remember this, you know, my twenties back in the nineties with the recession, it was so hard to get work. It was so hard to feel like you even got a, you know, foot in the door. Every job had 200 applicants. And so I, I remember very keenly that feeling of like, I don't know how to scale this wall. You know, like, I mean, I, I've known since I was 10 that what I really wanted to be was a writer and I never could quite figure, you know, and so I went into education, I went into this and that. Um, and, and I would never, I would not trade those experiences, like, especially like my time in Argentina um, and working in English as a second language, like it was incredibly valuable. Um, but also that little core of frustration that, you know, that's not what I want to be doing. That's, um, 
and what I didn't. So I want to express that empathy for anybody that feels like, you know, this, this is really what I want to be doing. How do I even get there? Well, start with yourself. Become an excellent writer. Then go to PaizoCon. Um, get on the, on the or, or while you're doing it, you know, go to PaizoCon. Get on the um, forums. Be, be prolific. Be involved. Get, get to know people. And then the, the opportunities will open up. But if you aren't, if you aren't where you need to be in terms of, you know, the setting, you are comfortable writing, um, then, then that golden opportunity might turn out to be, um, I don't know, what, what's a good symbol here? I'm not good on my feet. <laughs> might turn out to be rotten, rotten to the core. So um, that would really, that would be my first, or I guess that's my whole, (laughs) for the editing, um, that is a little, like I just had, I I did a little freelance editing and then I I put it up on LinkedIn and I thought, oh, these jobs are going to come rolling in and they never did. Um, So I'm a little more, but I did have friends that would reach out, you know, like I I did, I did a little bit and then I was able to get my foot in the door at the um, coaching company kind of through that. And then from there to other gigs. So I, uh, I know there are programs where you can get a certificate in editing or printing. um, And I, I know that there are websites where you can kind of, that might be a little more targeted than LinkedIn. Um, but again, I, I'd say make sure that you do a good job before you then kind of make, make your run at, because, you know, the gaming industry is, it's well, and especially tabletop gaming and role-playing it's very niche. There are a very few opportunities relative to, you know, the population at large. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, um, so I feel very, definitely um, very lucky, but also lucky that it hit at a time when I was where I needed to be in terms of my skill set, and that, yeah, and that really, I think is is key. Cool. So, what's next for Stephanie? I mean, you mentioned your your blog and this potential book. Any other exciting things? you'll be working on that's um that that's the core right now um again i will hopefully continue to be freelancing for paizo and uh you know land land a few more of those uh yeah that'd be great to be great to do more like starfinder writing and Mm -hmm. so yeah that's the excitement is around the fact that um yeah with this I i think my 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 biggest hope right now, my, my new frontier right now is this historical biography. That's, yeah. that's a new direction for me. That's not, um, and it draws on, I think a lot of the threads that I've, I mean, like I, I like I mentioned, I actually started my career teaching English as a second language. Um, so I, I connect back to that kind of understanding of what the immigrant experience is. And, um, and then, you know, my, while I was working on my PhD, I did a lot of history classes and, you know, kind of understand historical methods to an extent. And then I've, I've really been working 
you know, taking my writing, not just in that dry academic vein, but towards a, a more right. creative. And so I'm, I'm excited to kind of pull that together. And then I got to figure out, you know, where do you go from there? How do you, how do you get a publisher? <laughs> so that'll. So, so will this be a historical fiction then? No, it's not. My idea oh. is not to do fiction, but to do okay. more of a general interest. Like yeah. I, I don't yeah, want to do know. an academic biography. I want to do something right. more along the lines of like, you know, Wallace Stegner, because he was primarily a novelist, but also wrote some really engaging history because he also was a novelist. So yeah, my hope is that it'll be, and I, I don't feel like I need to embellish this guy's life at all. Like it was so, so interesting. And he did so many um, really cool things that I, you know, I, I don't need to, don't feel like I need to um, kind of novelize it. I, th- I think yeah. it'll be. I think I, well, I wish you luck on that and the follow-up yeah. screenplay that I'm sure will come. So <laughs> That would be amazing. Now that I would write. Absolutely. Um, All right. But yeah, I really look forward. I'm really glad that we're continuing to do the intrepid heroes that yeah. that's always a high point i really enjoy that yes and tonight we get a game tonight so. so yeah so i really you know i mean what's been i think very exciting about um just kind of the direction that opportunities have gone for me the last few years i think maybe more generally is that you know i, I can kind of um have a lot of different things on my plate, you know, like uh, keep a lot of um, opportunities kind of hopping. And yeah, that's, that's very invigorating for me. Is that a, invigorating? That sounded really dumb. No. <laughs> well, it, that's, that's what I like. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been a lot of fun having a chance to chat with you in more detail than we ever do. Thanks yeah. so much for, for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, thank you. Really appreciate it.